This is ContraZoom, where we go back and forth about film. I'm your host, Dakota Arsenault, and this episode is presented by Aesthetic Magazine. Today, I am joined by Sammy Felchenfeld, and we are going to discuss a very far out there topic, and that is the 50th anniversary of the moon landing. So thank you very much for joining me today, Sammy. It's my pleasure. I love talking space. Great. Um, I figured we need to set the stage a little bit. And so if you'll indulge me, I have a couple words uh, that I thought might uh, fit the moment. Does that sound good? Go for it. All right. Um, so as I mentioned, we're celebrating the 50th anniversary of the moon landing. But way back when, after the end of World War II, the United States and the Soviet Union entered a race to land on the moon. In 1957, the USSR launched Sputnik, the first satellite to orbit the Earth. And from that point onwards, the Cold War had a purpose. In 1961, President Kennedy gave his famous speech about why the U.S. wanted to win the space race. The speech concluded with the following. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills, because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept, one we are unwilling to postpone, and one we intend to win, and the others too. Those words echoed throughout the country, and while Kennedy unfortunately had his life cut short in 1963, scientists from NASA continued on. The Apollo program was launched in 1961, and Apollo 7 in 1968 was the first manned flight in space. It was only one year later, in 1969, only eight years after JFK's speech, did Apollo 11 occur. Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and Michael Collins launched on July 16, 1969, from Kennedy Space Center in Merritt Island, Florida. The crew spent eight days in space, including 21 hours on the actual moon, where Armstrong and Aldrin got to spend two and a half hours walking around conducting experiments, collecting samples, and taking a call from President Nixon. Including the first mission, only 12 people in total have ever stepped foot on the moon's surface, with the last moonwalk being Apollo 17 in 1972. For as long as humanity has been around, we have looked up to the stars and our natural satellite and wondered about the world outside of our own atmosphere. Stories about space travel have piqued our curiosities for just as long. When movie making was invented in the late 1800s, it didn't take long for stories to start showing up the picture box about space travel. In 1902, Georges Méliès made a short film called Le Voyage dans la Lune, or A Trip to the Moon, about a group of explorers who build a rocket ship and travel to the moon, where they encounter aliens who live there. Since then, there have been no shortage of movies regarding space travel. You have films based on reality, like The First Men to Orbit the Earth, that eventually set up the Apollo missions in The Right Stuff, a near-fatal trip to the moon in Apollo 13. The story behind the oft-forgotten colored women who are instrumental in the Mercury 7 launch in Hidden Figures, and the most recent example of the Apollo 11 mission being depicted in First Man. There have been plenty of other space travel films like The Martian, Gravity, Space Cowboys, and more that add a heavy dose of fiction to realistic space flight conditions. Then you have completely made-up films like 2001, Interstellar, Solaris, Armageddon, and the Alien series, which take our curiosity of outer space and mix in other genre elements like horror, thriller, and mystery. As Buzz Aldrin said during the Apollo 11 mission, 
we feel that this stands as a symbol of the insatiable curiosity of all mankind to explore the unknown. And with that, we want to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the moon landing and discuss our favorite space films. So thank you, for Sammy, for joining me. You share my passion for sci-fi. And I want to start things off with the very beginning, A Trip to the Moon. This is a movie that it clocks in at only 12 minutes in length, but for some reason completely captures both the absolute innovative heights that movie making could reach with the absolute imaginative heights that mankind can reach at the same time. Uh, was this a movie that you had seen before? Uh, not surprisingly, I saw it in my one and only film class in university. It contains one of the most absolute iconic images in cinema itself where these men finally get into their spaceship, which looks more like a bullet shot out of a cannon, and it crash lands into the eye of the moon because the moon, of course, has a face to it. Uh, and with that, we get this intoxicating mix of both uh, science and creativity, and it really is rightfully known as one of the great pioneering films of cinema. And not only that, it's like it's it's a it's a testament to the fact that nobody had any idea what traveling into space would be like or what the moon would look like. Granted, this is not an accurate film by any means, but um, this is 120 years ago. About that's a long time ago. This was before even flight was a thing, very very widespread. And, and here we have a filmmaker who is just like, yeah, I'm just going to make a movie about people who go to the moon, and this is what it looks like. And then not only did it shape what future space and moon movies look like, it even shaped what actual space travel would look like. Granted, our spaceships don't look like bullets, but the, the, the general ideas at the time that it existed for hundreds of years, it's almost, it's almost like the idea of how Star Trek has sort of influenced the way some of our modern technology works. I think that there is, there is a bit of influence in, in this film to the way that space travel at all works now. It's almost like reading a, a Jules Verne novel about uh, visiting different places or a Isaac Asimov novel about uh, robotics. These are people that manage to conjure up fantastic ideas that we as a humanity were many decades away from actually even conceiving. So the fact that Malaise was able to do such a thing uh, was quite impressive in his own right. And, and if anyone hasn't seen the sort of biopic movie about him, Hugo, it's definitely one that any any film buff historian should sort of check out. It isn't uh, so much the the child's movie that it's made out to be. Yeah, I mean, that movie was, it, it's sort of a surprise that that's sort of what the movie becomes about. It's not a spoiler now, that movie came out eight years ago. But um, it's interesting like you, that you brought up Jules Verne. The first thing that came to mind when I rewatched uh, A Trip to the Moon was um, C.S. Lewis, about 10 years before he started writing the Narnia books, his first kind of major fantastical literature was, um, it's called the Space Trilogy, and the first book is Out of the Silent Planet, and this was in 38. So I have to imagine that C.S. Lewis was a child when he saw um, A Trip to the Moon, and it, it seems very much that there's connections there. That this, These books are, there's no way around it, C.S. Lewis wrote everything from a Christian lens, so these books are very much um, positing that the solar system is basically the heavens, which is what the characters call it all the time. Um, but there's a lot of interesting parallels between I think what he visualized space travel to look like and that maybe coming from in their infancy, again, this early film that sort of was like, yeah, this is how it works. That's fascinating here. I didn't actually realize that. 
Um, but then, you know, we, we, we go from a trip to the moon and I think it's only right for us to sort of talk about some more realistic, uh, space travel movies and so we kind of want to highlight a couple and they're going to go in chronological order of when they the events are depicted happened and not necessarily when the movies came out so the first one for me that i want to bring up is the right stuff it's not your typical um space travel movie it's a movie more about the precursor to it you know the movie starts out with these test pilots trying to break the sound barrier and when they finally do uh, a team gets organized through the u.s military and eventually was known as nasa to send a man to space because the cold war has sort of started and it starts off you know with Sputnik happening and then you learn that the Americans counter that by sending a chimpanzee to space and then the Russians counter that by sending Yuri Gagarin to space Gagarin to space and the Americans feel that they sort of lost the space race because they were too cautious which you know it is definitely kind of a ludicrous thing to assume when it's talking about uh, literally launching someone out of our atmosphere when you have no real idea of what might occur uh, and when they finally do it, it definitely depicts these men in the struggles that they had to face with not knowing what might exactly happen and the challenge that occurred and eventually concluding with uh, the final scene of the movie is uh, one of the astronauts getting to orbit the earth seven times which is the most that anyone had ever done before and then coming home safely which is really sort of the impetus behind uh, Kennedy's famous we'll put a man on the moon by the end of the decade and bring him back home safely. Uh, this was a movie I'd never seen before. I decided to watch it for this and it's definitely got some really great flight sequences. It didn't quite hold my attention at three hours in length. I wish it was a little bit shorter because it's kind of got hand and a little bit of everything but it's something I really enjoyed. Um, and then I think the next chronological one that I think we should talk about is, is Hidden Figures. Uh, this is one that you've seen though, right? Yes, I, I haven't seen the right stuff. I have seen Hidden Figures, but it's interesting that you bring up the flight sequences because I remember the first time I saw Hidden Figures, which is a great movie on its own, but I was shocked by just how impressive the, like, if not even science fiction, it's science fact. They just did a really good job of the very brief times they did show um, kind of essentially the, these people's calculations at work. Um, I was really struck and impressed by that. But of course, there's a difference. The right stuff came out 30 plus, 35 years ago, um, and Hidden Figures is a more recent film where I think that there was a bit of a passion from the filmmakers to make sure that that was still captured properly. Yeah, you see in, in stuff like The Right Stuff and other space movies, it's definitely the background. You see the scientists studiously taking notes while the astronauts are going through their tests, and in the command center, you know, it's a room full of people diligently working behind their desks all shouting good to go in their microphones uh, but you don't really get to see who these people are and it really was nice that Hidden Figures was able to tell a story that very clearly needed to be told not even just because history has unfortunately forgotten uh, a lot of the women and especially black Americans that were so instrumental to the space race. But in general, it wasn't just the astronauts that put themselves in those rocket ships and sent themselves up. There was an entire army of people behind them ensuring that every mathematical equation, mostly written down in pen and notebooks, was accurate. 
Yeah, I think it's there a lot in a lot of space movies, whether they're based on reality or they're fiction. They kind of it's like you said they show they sort of show mission control and they don't really go beyond that. But there are a couple that do go a bit deeper into sort of like the lives or the character of those people. Um, but I, I mean, they tend to like the Martian sticks out and contacts another one, which isn't really a space movie in the same way, but um, it, it was an interesting approach and I think it was the right way to do it. And then I, I walked out of that movie being like, I want to watch more movies like this, <laughs> um, especially from that era as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And there and included some really powerful performances, uh, which rightfully got recognized by the Oscars. And, and I think a whole new generation of people had some heroes to sort of look up to of, you know, not everyone could be an astronaut, but you could be the type of people that ensures that astronauts get to space. Yeah, exactly. And I think um, it's, it's sorry, it's a tangent to The Martian again, but um, soon after The Martian came out, the uh, the writer of the, the book it was based on was offered a deal to write a series for, I think it was CBS, called Mission Control. And it was specifically about uh, an ensemble of people who are the behind the scenes folks. And that's that's most of the cast of The Martian is is that their characters are focused on that. Unfortunately, I don't think it made it past pilot, but it would have been interesting to see sort of a modern or like a, a near future take on that now that potentially we're going to Mars one day. Yeah, that would have been pretty cool. I didn't even know about that. That's uh, that's a shame because I know, I can't remember the, the author's name of The Martian, but it was widely praised for being as close to scientifically accurate as it could get for a movie about going to Mars and living on it. Exactly. And I just remembered it's Andy Weir. Andy Weir. That that (laughs) is correct. Um, The next one I kind of want to talk about is a movie that actually just came out this year, uh, which is the documentary Apollo 11 about the actual Apollo 11 space missions. This movie was fascinating. I had heard about it. Uh, a friend of my, a friend of ours actually had asked if I, if I was free that we can try and schedule a time to go see it. Uh, I believe it was playing out on one of the IMAX screens or, or somewhere like that, and the timing just didn't work out. And boy, do I regret not seeing this film on a, on a giant screen with great, speakers behind me blasting in my ears but it's quite fascinating this is a movie that doesn't have any narration except for uh not i don't want to say music but there is some music to it um but the actual communications between control center and the astronauts and the footage that they managed to capture just absolutely blew my mind this is stuff that you watch and you go, how is this not planned? How is this not, you know, cut from a movie? How is this not outtakes from Apollo 13 or the right stuff or, or whatever space movie you want? This is so cinematic. And then you realize that these directors, for the most part, have had some pretty in-depth access to NASA's archives and probably saw a lot of this footage. And that's how they were able to create this world that seemed both so realistic and so cinematic at the same time was because it already ex- existed on film. Just we as viewers hadn't seen it before. So what might seem cliche was actually stolen from these archival footage tapes by these directors, you know, 20, 30 years ago. And it was absolutely beautiful to watch. And I was fascinated, uh, especially by the still photos that Neil and Buzz were able to take while on the moon. And as a photographer myself, I couldn't help but 
uh, admire the clarity of the shots, the composition of them, the, the depth of field. Everything about it was just fantastic. I more just want to know what cameras they had at their disposal, which given the fact that it was NASA, I imagine they probably had pretty top-of-the-line cameras and lenses at the time. Uh, but it was, it was just stunning to really see this sort of footage and what the reality was like for these people in these conditions. Uh, and I highly recommend for anyone that has not seen it yet to definitely check it out. I do plan to watch it eventually. I'm the the thing that struck me the most when I saw the trailer for it um, is they had they used seventy millimeter film cameras. These are not small things fifty years ago to carry around with them, um, and so it's just I, I think it's a testament to the the archiving, but also just the forethought at the time to record as much as they could, probably with originally without the intention of ever actually being seen by the public, just for their own records, so we can benefit from it today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny. Like I, I was talking about it with my with my wife afterwards, and she's like, "Why didn't they use this footage?" I'm like, "Well, you know, you have I'm guessing 20, 30 different camera people shooting film for hours on end over the course of you know months and weeks, whatever long they were filming for, and then they cut together their reel for two minutes of news footage, and then the rest of it they just have lying around. Like, yeah, you clipped out the two best minutes." for the news but what about the the remaining 200 hours of footage that you have that doesn't seem very exciting but to someone that's genuinely interested is absolutely fascinating to watch yeah it's something something i'm definitely looking forward to seeing (laughs) Um, the next one I want to talk about is, uh, is a film that actually came out last year, which was the dramatic reenactment of the Apollo 11 missions in First Man. And this was something where I thought it, it really kind of combined uh, some of the best space travel tropes, I guess you want to say. They've got the early flight test sequences that directly mimic some of the stuff in the right stuff. And then you have the actual launching footage and the actual space travel going to the moon. And it seems to combine every documentary footage we've seen, stuff like uh, Chris Hadfield up on the ISS shooting from up there, what the Earth looks like from, from the space station. And it really does sort of capture it all while going inside the mind of a guy that wasn't really keen on being a celebrity, but unfortunately had to be. You know, you don't really think of scientists being celebrities. You know, we've got a few, whether it's Bill Nye or Neil deGrasse Tyson, people like that. But for the most part, these astronauts actually are scientists mixed with people with military backgrounds. They're not used to being thrust in the limelight of you're suddenly a famous person and we want to get a quote for you from you to play on the evening news with Walter Cronkite. No, these are people that do their job and go home and wake up and do their job again. And that's all they do. Yeah, I haven't had a chance to see to see First Man, unfortunately, um, partially because I was a little bit, um, I won't say turned off by the reviews, but I, just what I heard from various people is that it, it was not what people expected. And I think that's hard to do is when you may basically make a space movie that's not about space. It's about the people. And like you said, these are people whose it was not an easy thing to do, especially the, the first the first decade of the Apollo program was a mess, basically. It was all these attempted flights and people dying and injuries and accidents and this, that, and the other thing. And it's in, in many ways, it was a surprise that thanks to millions and millions of dollars, they were able to do this, that, that the, 
the Apollo 11 through 17 were able to to make it to the moon, basically. Um, but uh, that's all I can say because I haven't seen the film. But I appreciate the 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 greater glances into the lives of these people. No, you're absolutely right, especially because it was done by director Damien Chazelle, who is just coming off of La La Land, which I know is a bit of a divisive film, but for the most part, it's a pretty crowd-pleasing film. And then you have his other previous film, Whiplash, which I guess you can sort of call that a, a crowd-pleasing film. It's definitely one that narratively gets the audience very excited. And then you have a much more subdued film that has nothing to do with music, featuring people that are very dour because everyone around them is dying and the mission they're about to embark on is very life or death. And it's not exactly what I'm sure the audience was expecting when they heard that the guy that directed La La Land is teaming up with its star Ryan Gosling to make a movie about the the moon landing. Uh, And weirdly enough, it wasn't what people were expecting. (laughs) Exactly. And I think, I mean, they can't really be no one can really be blamed for that other than just it's it's a very different kind of movie mm-hmm. uh so the last one uh following the apollo 11 mission there was apollo 13 which they made a movie of starring tom hanks and kevin bacon and many others about the near disastrous film this is one that uh you've seen and, and can touch on yeah, it's it's very much the definition of a of a blockbuster. Uh, it came out in '95, so this is a precursor to some bigger, more bombastic space movies like Armageddon. But um, interestingly enough, I didn't even remember this was directed by Ron Howard. But they did. Uh, I haven't seen it for a couple years, but they did a, a really good job of trying to not trying to be as close to reality as it can be while still very much being dramatic. Um, so it's based on. It's kind of based on. Um, a book that was written by um, that was actually written by the the commander of the the mission. Um, so like that adds a lot to it. But I think at the same time they they the biggest okay. So the reality of the Apollo thirteen thing is that the accident and everything that took place is a very small fraction of their mission. But it was stuff happened and they had to return to Earth immediately. Turning that into a two and a half hour movie. Um, means that there's a few extra, there's a bit extra they have to add to it and a bit more drama with the characters and all this and that. But um, what's interesting about it is that with with six Apollo missions that did sort of attempt to or land on the moon, that this is the only one that ever got a fictional, um, that ever got a fictional take. And more interestingly, that this came basically 25 years before even a, a, a like a, a, a an expensive hollywood version of the first of of, of actually neil armstrong landing on the moon mm-hmm. and you know interestingly enough as far as how it was filmed was pretty ingenious where nowadays you just assume that they devise some sort of rig and shoot it on a, a green screen which is you know we're going to talk about that a bit later or in water which is another uh, way that you can shoot fl- flight um, weightlessness. They actually filmed all the weightlessness scenes in NASA's uh, Vomit Comet, as it's affectionately known, where it's basically an airplane that shoots up, basically gets to around atmosphere level, and when you get up there, everything becomes weightless, but you're only up there for a few minutes before you come back down. And so astronauts train on this by getting to feel what real weightlessness feels like, but they do it like 20, 30 times a day uh, because these increments are so small. And by doing that so much, it basically forces your body to vomit 
and uh, so you're up and down this all day long and they actually filmed the weightlessness sequences in that which is in my mind just kind of blows my mind that they'd be willing to spend that sort of money to get sequences two minutes at a time where you know that if you don't get that shot right exactly when you do it you're having to do it all over again yeah i think and and it was 95 so that this is what they this was essentially what they were going to do to make that happen that way um so i mean kudos to them and especially to the actors for, for kind of putting up with that as well and i think it's one of the only films to ever do it like that mm-hmm. it, yeah it's, it, it came out at a weird era where it was right when practical effects were slowly phasing out and computer generated effects were just starting to ramp up you had jurassic park a couple of years earlier which really pioneered blending the two together to great effect but really, if you look at any sort of movie from the early to mid-90s that tries using mostly CGI, it looks really dated and terrible by now. But the ones that were actually able to marry the two, as well as stuff like Jurassic Park and Apollo 13, they really do stand the test of time. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's, I mean, we're going to talk about them in a bit, but that's, I think, uh, representative of, of more recent fictional space films like things set in the near to far further future um with the way they're filmed and sort of the difference you can see in the way they're filmed as well Mm -hmm. so that was us talking about some of our favorite space related films that are based on more historical accuracy um I got the chance to reach out to someone where I was like hey you know what we're talking about this being the 50th anniversary of the moon landing why don't I talk to someone that actually remembers it? So I gave my dad a call who was 18 years old in 1969 and sort of asked him a few questions about what life was like watching this and hearing about it and everyone talking about it and what the general mood of the public was like. Uh, so we're going to take a break and you're going to hear that conversation. Whatever happened to those faces in the old photographs? I mean the little boy. Boys, hell, they were men who stood knee-deep in the Johnstown mud in the time of that terrible flood. And they listened to the water. That awful noise. And then they put away the dreams that belonged to little so now I am joined by my father, uh, Ken Arsenault, who back in 1969 was a spry 18-year-old who, along with the rest of, I presume, the world, was very closely following the Apollo missions. Um, I guess, you know, this was a huge lead-up. We were talking a little bit before, you know, it was it started with, Sputnik and then Yuri Gagarin and it went on and on and on and so it wasn't just a a single moment of July in 1969 so what was sort of the lead up every time you're reading news stories or or watching stories on on TV how was anticipation changing did the public really believe that someone would be able to walk on the moon I think everybody believed that at, at some point we were going to uh, not only walk on the moon, but we were going to extend beyond uh, uh, being on the moon to Mars and other planets. 
it, it was a time of, of um, op- it was a it was a curious time of optimism and and pessimism because we had a lot of wars and, and a lot of political strife going on at the time, but we were also uh, enthralled by the fact that we, we had these amazing advances in technology and ability to to go into space. We watched um, we watched Yuri Gagarin go into space. Mind you, that was extremely political because it was the Russians getting into space before you know the the West. Uh, we watched the Gemini projects. We watched the uh, 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 all the astronauts going into space. But the, the culmination of that was to to reach the moon. And I, uh, with uh, Kennedy making that promise uh, in the early 60s, saying that we were going to send a man to moon, send a man to the moon and bring him back safely. Um, so when it actually happened, it was a, it really felt very optimistic. It it felt like you know we were gonna we were gonna reach those those days of, of Star Trek and and uh, all of the science fiction writers who had an optimistic view of the future. And, uh, and, and uh, of course, as an 18-year-old, I was, I was extremely enthralled by the whole thing and, and very optimistic about what the future was going to hold. Every once in a while, when there's sort of new discoveries, I find that it's great for young people learning about that subject. It, it gives them a way to sort of connect to it. Did you feel as, as someone who is just finishing high school and moving on to college, all these sort of scientific achievements, did that element ever come into the classroom where you know your teacher would say, and this is what's going on with the Mercury missions or the Gemini missions, and this is how it relates to the lesson that we're going to teach today? I guess to to some extent, uh, the the future was was something to view with extreme optimism. Uh, I mean, uh, I went to college using a slide rule and a in a in a trigonometry book to to solve equations. Whereas today, you can you can do so much more just with your iPhone or your 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 you know smartphone, but. There was there were so many possibilities. It it really created an environment of optimism. I think for most of my generation at that time, that that we thought we uh, to be brutally honest, I thought we'd be so much further ahead than we are today. Back then, um, that it's uh, today is somewhat disappointing that we, <laughs> we haven't we haven't extended on the achievements of that moon landing. I, I understand what you're saying. Um, we've been told, you know, after Curiosity went to Mars, that maybe it wouldn't be that far along. And everything that's happened with the International Space Station, you always expected there to be so much more on, on that. But I guess bringing it back to the actual Apollo 11 mission, can you take me back to what was going on on July 16th, 1969 for you? Oh, July 16, 1969. Okay. Uh, I was driving with uh, two of my friends, uh, Wayne King and Dino D'Onofrio. We were coming back from uh, a cottage. We had done a little bit of a, a fishing trip. 
and we were absolutely glued to the radio on the in, in the entire trip. So unfortunately, uh, I didn't get a chance to watch it on TV like so many other people did, like so many billions of people did. But uh, we were absolutely silent and enthralled by what was going on. And uh, the feeling, as I say, was a feeling of, of, of absolute optimism. The, the, the feeling that, my God, this isn't about, it wasn't about politics. It wasn't about the USA versus the, the USSR at the time or any of that kind of stuff. It was about mankind making this, this amazing leap, um, and I'm sorry to make <laughs> a parallel to Neil Armstrong's uh, comments, but it was a huge leap. It was a gigantic leap, and it, it's hard to express the feeling of, of what we had accomplished with so little in, in such a short period of time. And uh, uh, but today, unfortunately, I feel like we squandered something. We squandered something from from an incredible past, and then let it filter away. I, I understand where you where you're coming from from that, but I, I think it's absolutely fascinating that in an era where there was multiple ways to consume the information, just like there is today, that you had this experience where you got to listen to it on the radio. Was it a Canadian broadcast or was it uh, picking up the signal from an American feed and you were hearing uh, these famous American newscasters? No, it was absolutely a Canadian broadcast, probably CBC, but uh, we, were, we were driving along a, um, an Ontario highway at the time, so our, our ability to pick up uh, U.S. stations would have been extremely limited at the time, so it was it was probably just a local radio station picking up maybe something from from CBC or, or NBC that sort of thing. But uh, I mean, it's fifty years ago, so it's hard to be completely accurate. I don't All I remember. Uh, I do remember that we were listening to um, uh, the voice of Walter Cronkite at the time, who was uh, he was the. Uh, 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 quintessential newscaster in the in the era of the of the 60s and uh, he was uncharacteristically emotional uh, which kind of at the time news was was presented in this very unemotional very stoic way and to have Walter Cronkite get very emotional about this this whole thing was uh, was uh, a testament to the achievement of the moment. After you got back, did you end up buying any kind of newspaper or magazine that had any of the, the photographs on the cover and, and keep that as a souvenir? Um, it was hard to avoid. Did I keep it as a souvenir? No. Uh, unfortunately, I did not. Um, uh, but uh, as you can imagine, having a human being step on a completely co different celestial body was a huge uh, piece of news at the time. So it was everywhere. It was every magazine, every newspaper. It was it was everywhere. So it was hard to avoid. And after the fact, of course, I watched all the uh, the, the videos of the news landing and of uh, Neil Armstrong step, stepping off the limb 
making his initial uh, statements, that sort of thing. So it was uh, it, it was an oddly proud moment for humanity. Um, I, w- I wish it was an, uh, a, a, m- a more proud moment for uh, politics at the time, but uh, it was a, a beautifully proud moment for humanity. And I, I don't think there was anybody on the planet who didn't absolutely uh, go crazy about the, the fact that we had stepped on a on a different planetary body. Wow. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate you giving the perspective. You know, you can watch movies, you can read stories, you can see the actual news footage, but sometimes you sort of need that real first-hand encounter of what things were actually like. So thank you very much for, for sharing that story. Oh, um, much appreciated. I, w- I wish, <laughs> unfortunately, it's 50 years ago, so the memories tend to, uh, to dim over time, but uh, uh, I certainly appreciate the opportunity to share what I remember. And uh, it was a beautiful moment, and hopefully there will be more beautiful moments like this to come in our future. going down for Mr. Bowie as he's singing with his class of 192. Oh, mother country, I do love you. Oh, mother country, I All right, so it was really nice to hear from someone who actually experienced the Apollo 11 landing in real time. Uh, Now we're going to talk about some of our favorite movies uh, that are not so much based on historical accuracy, but still have an air of truthfulness to the way they depict space travel. And I think we really sort of have to start with Gravity. That movie appears to be one of the most realistic depictions of space travel that we have ever seen on cinema, added with the fact that the special effects are just part of my pun, out of this world. Uh, this is one that I know that you're quite a fan of too, aren't you? Yeah, I mean, it goes without saying, this is one of my favorite movies. Apollo and Quran is one of my favorite directors. It was just a, it was, it was a great combination and it kicked off actually, there's basically been a, a big space movie or like a non-scary alien movie every year since this came out in 2013. And I know that because my brother and I go to one sci-fi movie together every year and this was this was kind of the first one. And I'm reading about this movie and I've seen it Many times, I don't know how many, but I do love it. Um, it it comes with Karan's sense of sort of it's space. There's no point in having a bunch of jump cuts here and there. So a lot of the shots are quite long, um, especially one of the first shots is which is one of his trademarks is is it is meant to appear as a single, I think, uninterrupted 20 minute shot, which is not actually the case, but they make it appear that way. But what's really interesting is that instead of just sort of having Sandra Bullock flopping around in, in the vomit comet, as you said. They, they had her attached to a giant mechanical arm rig in the kind of the green screen space. And it was so complicated that she chose to have extremely long filming days because it took hours to get in and out. Um, so it was just easier for her to be in the rig. And then when she needed to, to take care of things or eat, she would just stay in the rig, take off her helmet. 
and the operator would move her to the table or move her to where she needs to be, which just sounds kind of kind of a funny way to do that. But it's true. She's she basically is is floating or appears to be floating the whole the whole film. Um, and it's just it's it's something that I remember uh, coming out of it. I was so tense and so scared. And I was like, I want to see it again. It was so cool because it just showed this is what like this. This seems to me more closer to what space travel is, obviously, without the scary parts. I, I'm pretty sure I ended up seeing this movie in 3D in theaters when it came out. I went with uh, with my wife and my brothers, and the four of us sat there. And afterwards, I think we all kind of felt a little nauseous, which I think is what Quran wanted the audience to feel because that's exactly what the character Sandra Bullock's character was really going through. Oh, definitely. It was meant to be tense. It was meant to be scary. It was meant to, to really be quiet, which it was a lot of the movie. Um, so it's just, I don't know, I just, I just loved it. And I think that's the closest, like, that's the, the, the type of thing that could happen three or four years from now in terms of all the movies we'll be talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, we've already talked about it a few times, uh, but I guess we can bring up again The Martian. This is a, a film starring Matt Damon about an astronaut stuck on Mars after uh, his team thinks that he died during a sandstorm and they have to go back and rescue him. But he still is basically living on Mars for a couple years, I believe, and has to use his botanist ingenuity to basically jerry-rig his science station to keep him alive for several years, despite the fact that he does not have the materials to do so. So it really kind of combines uh, some real science with some science fiction to to create a really interesting narrative. This is a movie that... uh, I don't always think of when I think about movies I love, but I do remember when I did watch it, one that it was one that I really did like. Yeah, it's, it is a great movie. It's uh it's very much what people consider a hard science fiction movie. Um, it does make some changes from the novel, which is very hard science fiction. That was sort of years of research to make it as accurately as accurate as humanly possible. But granted the novel is longer. You can't fit in his whole multiple years um, and do it as visually. Cause at the end of the day in the novel, he's, He's not speaking to anybody. Uh, it's sort of just his internal dialogue, whereas in the film, you know, they have him doing his logs and he's talking to himself and everything. But this is another one that's sort of like, okay, 40, 50 years from now, um, there's a bit more, like this is a reality. But the one thing that always stands out for me in this movie is the one thing that's the most unlikely thing in the world is that the whole world and NASA and the American government just says, you know what, $3 trillion, we don't care. We need to save this one person. I just unfortunately don't think that that's what would happen, especially with multiple other governments swinging in and saying, we'll give you this thing, we'll help out with this thing. But it does make you feel good and it makes for real good filmmaking. It does. And, you know, I do remember the discussion after the movie came out of how much will... If, if, if a situation like this ever did come up, what are the odds that, you know, the American and the Chinese governments would be able to work together to find a common solution for an American? Or if we reverse the tables, what if it was a Chinese astronaut? How likely would the Americans be to waste that much money to save one of their astronauts? Yeah, exactly. But, you know, willing suspension of disbelief. <laughs> it definitely kind of gave hope that humanity isn't completely screwed. Um, I think 
and if we want to go in sort of the more complete fantastical direction, you have something like Interstellar, where Christopher Nolan in the last few movies has really sort of done his darndest to really nail down accuracy as much as he can while still embellishing things. I remember when the movie came out hearing reports about how accurate the, the, the actual science behind the time travel was and how he was working with uh, a scientist named uh, Kit Malone, if I'm remembering his name correctly, to ensure that the actual theories were as close to being accurate as possible and you know the stars all being accurate of where they should be and how planets would react and how we interpret time. And he managed to take all this really nerdy mumbo jumbo and turn in one of the most fascinating beautiful films of the past decade definitely and i think what's really interesting about it uh in in the context of all the other films we're talking about kind of the whole point of the of the movie like the crux of of the 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 central uh crisis or whatever they 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 want to do is that um is that people don't like because of everything so kind of Everyone needs to focus so much on Earth and the problems on Earth that they forget to think about space travel and forget to think about the stars. And then specifically, and this stood out to me, is at the beginning they talk about how in the schools they actually start talking about that the space missions and the Apollo moon missions were faked because they don't want people to start getting ideas that our answer is in the stars. Whereas that's sort of that's the idea is that don't just don't just waste all your energy uh, fixing what's here. Try to find solutions that might be out there, and, and it tur- turns into this really intense but also really great nearly three hour three hour film it's one that i feel like i really need to revisit it's one i don't think i've seen it since it came out and i really did love and enjoyed especially that fantastic score in it and and i think i need to sort of go back and analyze especially mcconaughey's performance where i know he can be a little up or down i know we're in the middle of the mcconaughey whatever you want to call it but it really is sort of a lot of people working at their peaks together because you had Nolan and McConaughey and Jessica Chastain and you have a surprise cameo for Matt Damon and a whole bunch of other people doing some really fantastic work together. Not only that, I'm reading the cast list and I didn't even remember that Timothy Chalamet is the younger version of his son and Mackenzie Foy is the younger version of his daughter. So it's, it's, it, it was, it's, it's a, I mean, only Christopher Nolan could basically say, I want this actor. And that actor says, sure thing. I'm in this movie. So um, and it resulted what's what's kind of disappointing is we haven't really had a movie quite like that since then. We've had other kind of like spacey movies, but it tends to be you and I were just talking about this beforehand, a lot more sort of an alien comes to earth or something or something that's like way off in a different place. It's funny that we often don't think of when we think of space movies, star Wars is, um, is a space movie, but it seems like more of a fantasy epic than it does something in the vein of interstellar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a lot of space travel in star Wars. You know, I, I, doing my research for this episode, I was typing in, you know, best movies about space travel and star Wars kept popping up as one. I, I mentioned in my, my keynote, the alien franchise and while it involves them going to different planets um only really the first one is really about space travel the rest of them is about being on alien planets uh and star trek really has a lot of actual space travel in it definitely and i think it's it's one of those things where it's sort of like 
the the filmmaker and the people who want to make these films will decide what the focus is. Dune is another great example. It's coming out next year. You know how excited I am about it um, to bring it up every opportunity. But even that, it's there's a bit of space travel, but that's not what it's about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I I do want to talk really briefly about um, Ad Astra, which is coming out later this year, um, which. Its director, James Gray, was quoted as saying before he started working on it, I want to make the most realistic depiction of space travel that's been put in a movie. And it's meant to be a bit more of a kind of the Martian-y, like near future. Um, you know, we, we can travel only as far as the edge of the solar system. It's not really about colonies. It's not really about far future kind of like problems on Earth. Um, I think it's really meant to be a, a kind of a, a, a smaller film, but that's trying to still show a more accurate depiction of, of travel in space. It's funny, back on the very first episode of this latest incarnation of the podcast, um, it was the summer movie preview, and at the time Ad Astra had a release date of May, so we talked about it, but it was definitely more of the the lines of, we really don't think this movie's coming out in May, but we're going to talk about it anyways because we're so excited about it. This is definitely one of the most anticipated movies of the year for me. Oh, easily, for sure, and I think... I think it wasn't delayed for any other reason than just Disney bought Fox and that was and they just shuffled it in the calendar and they've they've now slotted it in between some of Disney's other big tent poles to kind of give it that chance to be to sort of take its own attention. It also made no sense that this movie was coming out in May when it most likely is going to be in contention for awards at the end of the year. Oh, exactly. If if not for acting, it's definitely another one that's going to kind of like Gravity, where it swept pretty much every technical award there was five years ago. It's going to be, I think, sim- similar to that. It has a good, good, strong cast. Um, seeing Tommy Lee Jones in a space movie just seems right. Uh, so I think it's going to be maybe we'll just have to talk about it on another episode after it comes out. Maybe. Yeah. Um, so I guess kind of. Any other space movies, maybe more along the alien, sci-fi, horror themes that you kind of want to mention and ones that you're fan a fan of? Um, probably one of my favorite movies ever is Contact. I did briefly bring it up earlier. And again, it's it's more about people on Earth and, and kind of responding to a message from space and building their own kind of spacecraft. Um, but it, it, it again has some realistic depictions. Uh, there was a lot of efforts to make it more of a what if so what if these things all happen right now in the 90s with Jodie Foster basically um but something about it I've always loved it I've always thought it was a fascinating film and probably the most important reason for that and this isn't a spoiler is that uh and the same thing happens in the book is at the very end people some people don't believe that she traveled however many thousands of light years and some people do and I think that's sort of the spirit of science is sort of just like get people excited about something get them to ask questions and try to have people figure it out for themselves if they can we talked about Star Trek being a film that actually has a lot more space travel than sort of people probably remember. But Star Wars is also sort of in that similar vein where there there's a lot of sequences, you know, some of the most iconic sequences. A New Hope starts out with you see a small ship, then you see a bigger ship in space and it's them battling it out and and they're really over the course of the entire franchise there's been numerous very iconic space sequences of them traveling around for sure but i think sometimes the context is lost a little bit with i mean this happens in a lot of sci-fi and space tv shows is that if earth isn't present or referenced we sort of think it is something different uh, not that that's a bad bad thing, but but Star Wars in particular is a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. So it's sort of like a 
it is kind of its own thing as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, I think we sort of covered the gamut of movies that invoke the sort of curiosity that humankind has blending science and fiction together, which is why that genre exists, science fiction. Uh, and, you know, we both are really big fans of it. And, and I'm really curious to see where Ad Astra goes and where other films of this nature sort of go. You know, also in the last year, we had uh, High Life, um, the movie starring Robert Pattinson that sort of is about space travel. It's more about a prisoner stuck on a spaceship than the actual space travel itself. Uh, but hopefully we get more of these really smart films that, really wow us with their effects as well i think it's going to keep happening as, as long as there's people that keep going to them i couldn't put it any better myself thank you so much for for joining me today sammy my pleasure thanks for having me as always make sure you follow the show at ContraZoom pod on both instagram and on twitter you can send me an email uh contrazoompod at gmail.com let me know what your favorite space movies are thank you to aesthetic magazine for presenting the show and thank you to eric and kevin smale for making our theme music uh thank you so much for listening i hope you enjoyed this episode mm -hmm.